0: From the studios of KPCW in Perk City, this is Cool Science Radio. It's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining. And
1: if we can understand it,
0: so will you. I'm Lynn Ware Peak,
1: And I'm Katie Mullally. Well, first this morning, Dr. Dennis Charney joins to talk about what scientists know about resilience in his book, Resilience, The Science of Mastering Life's Greatest Challenges. HE SHARES A RAPIDLY EMERGING SCIENTIFIC RESEARCH BEHIND WHAT MAKES SOME OF US ABLE TO NAVIGATE TRAUMA MORE EFFECTIVELY THAN OTHERS.
0: AND THEN WE WELCOME INTO THE STUDIO WITH US NATURAL HISTORY MUSEUM OF UTAH'S TYLER BERTHASAL. TYLER IS A LAB MANAGER AND PREPARES FOSSILS AT NHMU. AND HE JOINS US TO DISCUSS THE PALEO PRE-LAB AND ALSO SOME UPCOMING EVENTS AT THE NATURAL HISTORY MUSEUM. THESE GUESTS When we return, you're listening to Cool Science Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, And I'm Katie Mullally. It can seem impossible to cope with the universal trauma of the age we live in, the daily threat of record-breaking, ever-rising temperatures, a drumbeat of mass shootings, political polarization and disease. Nearly every day, as we know, brings a new and more devastating headline. For decades, our next guest, Dr. Dennis Charney, has been at the forefront of research on trauma and human resilience, how to survive in the face of hardship. Dr. Charney has co-written resilience, the science of mastering life's greatest challenges. Dr. Charney is a world expert in the neurobiology of mood and anxiety disorders. And has made a fundamental contribution to our understanding of the causes of anxiety, fear, and depression. Dr. Charney, welcome to Cool Science Radio.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, you have co-written this book with two others. One who, and I'm sorry for your loss, is since deceased uh, in the public during the publication of the book, and it relates very well to. This story of trauma, because the three of you have all been through your own personal traumas. Can you talk a little bit about how that relates to
2: this book? Yeah, I'm happy to. First, I want to acknowledge the person you just referenced, Steve Southwick, who was my best friend uh, for 40 plus years, one of the best people on the planet. You know, he, uh, he, I, I think about him every day. He was an amazing uh, person. So you know, we we each um, you know had our traumas. Now, what ha- what happened with me? You know, Steve and I were uh, treating patients with post-traumatic stress disorder and depression and anxiety, and and we want, our goal was to come up with new treatments. And so we thought if we could learn from people who were resilient, who were traumatized but overcome, uh, overcame it in some fashion, we could develop new treatments for those conditions. So over the decades, uh, Steve and I had the honor of you know, working with uh, resilient people from POWs from Vietnam, uh, Navy SEALs, people who were born with congenital uh, conditions, victims of earthquakes, of uh, sexual and physical abuse, literally every kind of trauma, every kind of socioeconomic group, every ethnic group, over the years and we learned from them you know how did they overcome these terrible traumas and through that work starting as an open book different factors became apparent to us that characterize resilient people and we do outline you know that in our book which is now in the uh, third edition now in my case um, I was in the Vietnam era I never went to Vietnam so I didn't have the trauma of war, and I've had a good life, you know, so I never had a serious trauma until about seven years ago, when I was the victim of a violent shooting. I, I was shot by a former Mount Sinai faculty member who was a uh, had committed scientific misconduct, and as the dean, I ultimately terminated him. Seven years after he was terminated, he tracked me down in my local, uh, in my town where I live at the local deli and, hit, and shot me with a shotgun at close range. Luckily, I fully recovered. I Luckily, the, shot, the shotgun pellets did not hit vital organs, you know, didn't hit my heart and so forth. But I was seriously injured. I ended up in the intensive care unit for about a week at Mount Sinai, you know, where I'm the dean so at that time i said to myself okay you've been studying resilience you know for decades you've outlined what it takes to be resilient and i I said okay i'm gonna find out if i'm resilient and i'm gonna find out if what we learned Mm. is valid and frankly i found out that both things were true
0: yes wow what a story and I'm so sorry that that happened to you, but in a way, there's a silver lining that you get to test your own theories, right? And so I'm wondering are we then hardwired for resilience, or is it a characteristic that we
2: develop throughout our lifetime or not? Yeah, both. So resilience is in part genetic. I'm sure, you know, the two of you, me, your listeners, they know people who just seem to be optimistic uh you know resilient from uh, day one and so there is it it isn't part genetic but uh, genes are not destiny you can train yourself to be a more resilient uh, person so you know we've seen both um we we characterize somebody in the book who my family knew from day one when she was born uh, she was born with a congenital uh, condition called spina bifida, uh, w- you know, where you suffer from short stature and other kinds of disabilities. From when she was a baby, she was tough, and ultimately, uh, she was valedictorian of our high school class, swam on the swim team, won gold medals in the Paralympics, became a lawyer. You know, so we followed her through her life. But she was born resilient. She helped her parents become resilient so it's both
1: if you're just joining us on cool science radio our guest is dr dennis charney he is one of the authors of resilience the science of mastering life's greatest challenges so resilience like so many words is it becomes such a common part of everyday language but i think we lose the the value of that term what is your definition of resilience especially in this setting
2: so it's actually not that complicated. Uh, you know, resilience is defined, you know, by the ability to bounce back. That you know you're faced a serious challenge in your life, a serious disappointment, and at the worst case, you know, a trauma, and you're able to move beyond it eventually. In some cases, you do suffer from PTSD and depression, uh, but because you're resilient, you recover. In in other cases you don't you don't suffer so much uh from that condition those conditions and you move on and in the best case when you move on you become stronger we call we call that post-traumatic growth yeah what doesn't kill you makes you stronger so when you overcome these challenges and traumas when you're inevitably faced with another challenge in your life you're better able to handle it so you
1: you know we talk a lot about or just in general, there's a lot of talk about determination and tenacity and and drive. What is the difference though between those things like determination and resilience? Does resilience require a trauma to be the force of resilience?
2: Well, you never know if you're resilient if you're challenged right like I told you in my case. but what you described as as drive you know grit, never give up uh, that is part of being resilient um being optimistic can do is part of it uh placing your trauma in context so so you can move on these are all things we do describe in our book you know having a role model that provides guidance on how you can overcome you know what you're you're facing faith and religion spirituality all help so there are a lot of things that can help you uh, move forward from from being traumatized.
0: In your book, you sort of break up the chapters. Each chapter is one of these characteristics or ways, things that we can do to work on to become more resilient. And you've talked about some of those already, facing your fears and you know spirituality. And I'm curious about role models, and we see people who have horrific parents. And some of those people become their parents and some become the opposite of their parents. And so I think this plays into your chapter on on role models. How do we find the right role model and how to follow them?
2: Right. Good question. The the worst kind of trauma is is what is called intimate family trauma. So, you know, you're abused in some way, you're traumatized uh, by a, a parent uh, you know that's the worst you know because of course you think your parents are going to love you and take care of you and then when that happens that that's tough and it, frequently you know it happens early in life which is also you know really difficult in overcoming but you can overcome it and you, you do seek role models to help you get through it and it's it's important to say it's it's role models plural you know there's not one person that you can uh, emulate usually you find multiple people and you identify characteristics in them uh, that you want to emulate and before you know it um that comes together and helps you get through uh tough times so um you know and that's where people who've gone through something similar to you and overcome it can be a role model uh groups you know trauma groups of people that are fighting against trauma can be very helpful because you identify role models you know in uh, the group but there are other kind of people can be role models could be a teacher you know who has great influence uh on your life uh when we were so it can come from many different places one semi amusing amusing vignette one of the pow's who was incredibly brave um, and was held for six to you know seven years in Vietnam. When we asked him who was his role model, he said his parole officer. So he had obviously done something wrong, but his parole officer became a role model, um, and and made him recover and have true grit.
0: That's a success story for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm very close to someone who suffers from anxiety, and she works harder than anyone I've ever seen to diminish her anxiety. She just got back from a river trip in which the oar rig boat she was on flipped. She ended up in the water, crawling up on a rock. She said she was crying, and then right after that, she said, and it was so great. I just right. loved it because I had been so scared of that, and then when it happened, I realized I was okay. And I can't wait to go on my next river trip. Facing your fear, but also on on the flip side of that, if that happened, it could create more fear.
2: I have a, I have a good a couple of good examples there. So one is personal. Uh, so in in doing this work on enhancing resilience, yeah, I have five children they're now adults but as I was raising them I wanted to help them become more resilient now so I didn't but I didn't traumatize them, right I said that was a bad thing but I, I did challenge them. and one of the ways I challenged them was sort of like what you just said you know we would go on these adventure trips you know that was I would say semi-dangerous right and, you know you kind of you know out of off the grid and and doing some things that are challenging and so one time uh, one of my daughters, when she was 13, you know, we were on top of a mountain. Some bad weather came in, some wildlife, and she said to me in front of my other kids, she despised me, you know, for putting her in that situation. I didn't give in to her, you know. She always, you know, was a, took a while to get used to things, but I, you know, I didn't give in, you know. And now, you know, she's a, uh, she's 40 years old. She's she's got two kids. She's a total outdoor woman. You know, she goes to Yellowstone in winter. So that's the way you deal with it, one step at a time. You know, if you have a fear, you, you, you move through it one step at a time. So ultimately, you're able to do things you thought you couldn't. I'll, I'll give you one other example. So we studied the Navy SEALs who do really tough things. And we would ask them, like, are you fearless? You know, is that how you can go into enemy territory and rescue an American? no fear is a guide and we learn to handle that fear one step at a time through our training so that's how you face your fears
1: yeah and and in your book you've got the 10 core principles for being more resilient and i i think it's fascinating where you talk about minding your body because so often we equate resilience with the mental state a mental or spiritual state but as you were talking about and especially in some of the uh, the intro information that we were reading before the interview when you were shot having that physical strength that you had developed over years of being a kayaker and being active created a physical resilience remind us of the importance of that body resilience
2: you want to train your whole body uh, obviously training your mind uh, is very important but so is training your body uh, being in good physical shape helps you not only uh, you know fight through uh the trauma, maybe the insomnia uh, the the stress, uh, but it, it builds self-esteem when you feel good about your body and you're you're facing you know difficulties in your life and And here too, you have uh, role models. you know Steve uh Southwick, who I was describing before, you know we we would do these uh, pretty tough races uh three a three day ninety mile kayak race. And there was one time during the race, you know, Steve was like almost thinking maybe he ought to give up. And then he started thinking, wait a second, these POWs, you know, they they're in prison for six years. I, yeah, I think I could finish this race. So the physical part can be very helpful.
1: So of these 10, I think one of my personal favorites is challenge your mind, especially in these polarizing times where it's so easy for us to get stuck on one side. Can challenging our mind to possibly, does that also include possibly exploring others' opinions and challenging our own beliefs?
2: Well, that's that's a good thing for life, right? You know, not not be stuck on, you know, one opinion uh, based on your own background and you might be wrong and, and having the opportunity to meet people from all different, you know, walks of life, uh, challenges in their life, people who had to face poverty, abuse, bias you know that's super important and um you know a lot of what we're talking about you know has helped people get through so many difficult times and obviously what's going on right now you know with the the traumas in the middle east and israel and and um now the gaza and so forth i mean all that all speaks of resilience i mean how how are people going to overcome what, what's happened to them they will uh, through a lot of the factors that we describe but it's going to be tough but it's possible
0: it's a tragedy what's going on over there and I'm wondering you know a lot of times they talk about in in the table of contents doesn't come up which is you know victimization it's the the opposite almost of resilience and so I'm wondering you know there are those people who go through life and and they become victims of their situation however big or small it is it seems that you're just looking at the positive side how to create resilience what do you also say about victimization
2: you want to avoid victimization and uh, you know one of the ways to do that is to put what happened to you in context assimilate it uh, into who you are as a person and grow from it so i you know one example is a woman who unfortunately was raped taking the route of victimization you know was uh, uh, it was my fault uh, bad things always happen to me i'm going to avoid uh, relationships because i am always a victim and I'm, I'm going to avoid that the positive way of, of dealing with it is it wasn't my fault um i may have been a victim you know at a a moment in time, but I'm not an overall victim uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna move forward I'm gonna say well, it happened to me there's no doubt I can't undo that, but I'm gonna put it in context it's not my fault I can still have relationships I will have role model get me through it and I will become a stronger person because of it. That's the route
0: mm-hmm.
2: to avoid victimization mm-hmm.
0: You've talked a lot about your wonderful friend and co-writer, Steve Southwick. There's a third person who wrote the book with you as well, Jonathan DiPiero. His trauma was what a lot of kids unfortunately experience, and it's bullying. He was the target of constant bullying in his upbringing when he was a kid. This is huge, and how did how did he turn it around?
2: Yeah, so he you know he talks about that a lot. Um, he he has overcome it. He's become a very confident you know person, and obviously very successful in his life. But while he was being bullied, he he felt bad about himself, and he you know he worried about you know what was what was wrong with me, or why am I always being uh, you know picked on? But I think if you ask him about it in more detail, he eventually found people to help him get out of it to give him more self-confidence, you know, In a lot of cases, uh, you know, bullying the bully gets you out of it too, you know, to have the courage just not, you know, take it anymore. So I think he found the combination of, you know, people who gave him more self-confidence in himself, you know, that, that he didn't deserve to be bullied. So he put that in context. And he also, you know, developed a sense that he's not going to let people bully him either.
1: One of the things I've loved about your book is that it there's so many examples and different examples that shows all of us that, yes, we have been, we've all had our own resilience in our lives. We've had those, maybe they don't seem like big traumas to us, but those are these are events that can have an effect on us that then we now have to be resilient. And in the 10 steps, you also talk about the practice of resilience. Is there one particular practice that our listeners could take away with to really help build their resilience and understand that they can overcome and thrive through these challenges?
2: I wouldn't say one because one size doesn't, you know, fit all. So, you know, for folks who you know end up reading the book and look at the different elements to become a more resilient person, you know, try to look at those things and say, what, what fits me the best and move forward. There are some things, you know, uh, that we describe that I think help does help everybody, and and that is, you know, having a role model, taking care of yourself physically and emotionally, uh, you know, you know, look, look for a sense of, of a moral purpose, you know, in your life. Those are all helpful, and it's also very helpful to work to become a more optimistic person, to you know, to look on the bright side of things if you can to develop a psychological toolbox so that when you're faced with something, you say, I can prevail. I I know it's difficult, but I can prevail. And that's the kind of optimism you wanna have.
1: But I think it's important that we all remember that resiliency is built up before an event, not something that we pull from or look to after an event. Am I right with that?
2: For the most part, but sometimes you discover like in my, in my case, um, when you're faced with something, you discover something about yourself that gives you more confidence and it helps you grow as a resilient person. So it 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 is good to develop the sense of resilience and confidence and self-worth uh, before you're but you'll never, at times you'll say to yourself, when you're facing the trauma, you'll, you'll surprise yourself. And Ann Mastin, who's a researcher in this field too, came up with the term ordinary magic and mm-hmm. I, you know i love that term you know that quote ordinary people can have the magic um when faced with a tough time to show incredible courage and you're hearing that now in terms of what what's happened you know in israel you know in other places that you know some ordinary people have done amazing things yeah that pr- they probably never thought they had it in them Dr.
0: Charney, we've got to let you go, but before we do, I just wanted to ask you, going back to uh, you being the victim of a, a violent shooting and surviving it, like you say, you couldn't have planned, who could have planned ahead for that, Or, and, and you surprised yourself. What was the way in which you most surprised yourself?
2: Um, well, first I was surprised that it happened. It was like, really? Uh, you never plan to get shot, particularly with a shotgun. Um, you know, I think, you know, what surprised me, um, well, one, I got, I had enormous, uh, support. And by the way, that's a number, another element that's really critical that you get support from people who care deeply about you. And that the way that happened when I was shot was fantastic. Uh, even more than I expected, not only from my loved ones, uh, but from my colleagues and the students here and all that. So that was very helpful. Um, And I set a goal for myself in terms of recovery right away, and I was like a bulldog and pushing toward that. So that was a little little surprising, though I tend to be a bit of a bulldog. Anyway.
0: (laughs) Well, it's wonderful. Dr. Dennis Charney, he's a world expert in the neurobiology of mood and anxiety disorders. He's also dean of the School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you, Dennis. Thank you so much for joining us on Cool Science Radio.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Welcome back to Coal Science Radio. I'm Katie Mullally. And I'm Lynn Ware-Peak. Our next guest lives the adventurous life of a paleontologist. At least that's how we perceive Tyler Berthesel's life. Tyler is the paleontology fossil preparator and paleontology prep lab manager at the Natural History Museum of Utah. He joins us today live in studio to confirm or deny the adventures of being a paleontologist and to talk about exhibits and an an upcoming event at the Natural History Museum. Tyler, welcome to Cool Science Radio.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Tyler, before we get rolling on all the fun things that you've got at the museum, give us a quick little background on the Natural History Museum of Utah and where it's located.
3: Uh, WE ARE LOCATED UP AT THE TOP OF RESEARCH PARK AT 301 WAKARA WAY. AND THE MUSEUM'S BEEN GOING ON FOR, WELL, IT'S BEEN GOING ON FOREVER WITH ALL OF OUR FOSSILS AND ALL THE RESEARCH THAT WE DO. THOUSANDS OF YEARS. THOUSANDS (laughs) OF YEARS. BUT WE'VE BEEN UP THERE FOR 15 YEARS NOW, AND I'VE BEEN UP THERE FOR 10 OF THOSE YEARS NOW.
1: BECAUSE I KNOW THAT THE MUSEUM USED TO BE ON PRESIDENT CIRCLE DOWN AT THE UNIVERSITY OF UTAH, AND THAT'S WHERE I REMEMBER GOING DOWN. were you can you tell us anything about about that move up there because that had to have been an enormous undertaking, all of the fossils and the minerals yeah. and the artifacts.
3: It was a little before my time, but I do know just a so much work went into it. It was truckloads of all the resources going in. It took multiple months. I think it was almost a year to get all the collections moved from once. The new building was constructed, moving out of our President's Circle space.
0: And that new building, well, not so new now, but it it still seems new, really, uh, is an architectural marvel. It's just such a beautiful
3: building. Yeah, and it's just, like, keeping the open canyons, like, reflective of the environment around here in Salt Lake. That was one of the main goals going for everything with the architecture.
0: Yeah. So... It's always interesting to us when people choose to become paleontologists and we love to hear about the history of how you got into, you know, were you one of those little kids who had all the dinosaur models and all that or did it come somewhere, somewhere down the
3: road? Oh, it was, I was one of those kids that have that had every dinosaur model. I knew my dinosaurs backwards and forwards. I could sit there and name off like, oh, I'm going to do Parasaurolophus and study this one today. (laughs) And from a very early age, I knew paleontology is what I wanted to do. Now, the aspect of paleontology that I wanted to do changed. I thought I wanted to be like a curator or a professor and teach. And then as I grew up and I learned like what I enjoy doing, I love doing the fossil prep side and I learned what the curators and professors do and I'm like, that's cool. But it's not for me (laughs) i was one of those kids that also loved like legos and puzzles and when i sit there with like a fossil and i just have to puzzle it together for hours on end that is like my happy place right there (laughs) love it
1: well if you're just joining us on cool science radio we are talking with tyler berthasell tyler is the paleontology prep lab manager at the natural history museum of utah um all right so as a fossil preparator what does that mean other than treating dinosaur bones like legos
3: <laughs> <It> <laughs> no mean... disrespect
0: <laughs> to
1: the legos or the bones
3: <laughs> no it means uh, lots of hours of patience for the most part the average specimen can range to from like when we get it from the field where it's still encased in its plaster jacket to protect it to where you see it on display PrEP can take anywhere from a couple days or a couple hours to sometimes a couple years spending all that time. So some of our larger specimens have two or 3,000 hours on them, which is a full year to year and a half on them.
1: Wow. Well, have you ever had the experience where someone comes in and maybe another paleontologist and sees a an assembled fossil and they go, actually, that one bone belongs in something else?
3: <laughs> that happens more often than you think (laughs) or there will be a model where you're like you're looking at it and you're like something is off with that one and then you're like oh i see what's off there's an extra bone there (laughs) or they forgot to put a bone in so that happens quite often or you get the one where something's been sitting in collections for 80 years and someone new with new eyes like wow, that's completely different than what you thought it was. This is actually a brand new dinosaur, and it's like you've been sitting on this for 80 years and no one no one knew. Wow.
0: This is all so interesting, Tyler, and it's making me wonder about, you know, the standards of, you know, are dinosaurs in some way inherently standard? You know, different classifications, um, <laughs> but to be able to recognize a certain bone years later to then call it a new dinosaur? Like, what what are the standards? What are the common themes?
3: Well, it depends on the dinosaur for the most part. So you have a couple, like, I'll say the ceratopsians. So, like, triceratops, the guys with all the horns on their face. One of the jokes is, it's like, you only look at their heads and you don't look at their bodies Mm because all the cool anatomical changes are on their skulls. So the bodies have been kind of ignored a little bit. And when you're just looking at it, it's like, oh, it's a ceratopsian body. All of them pretty much have the same body plan. So it's not until you fi- look at the skull or you find the skull that you're like, oh, this is this particular species or not. So a lot of dinosaurs, they find a body plan that works for them. And a lot of the family members or all the different members of that group kind of keep that body plan, and it's usually the like their skulls that they change most of the time.
0: Okay. Boy, just being in the studio with you, the your excitement about what you do is really palpable. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Wait, uh, the other question I had is, have you been as excited about other things in your life
3: as dinosaurs? <laughs> mm, dinosaurs are... I won't say they're my entire life, but they are probably some of the coolest parts that I have in my life. Although I do get excited about other, like, ooh, I got a new Lego set today. <laughs> or, "Oh, this paper that I know about is coming out. But usually it's all, it's dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> I love it.
1: Well, it sounds like you'll be the perfect tour guide for the uh, museum's back behind the scenes on November 11th and 12th at the Natural History Museum. It's an all ages public event and there's a few different areas and they will be doing a paleontology area. So for our listener, when our listeners go down to this exhibit or this event, what can they expect to see, especially in the paleontology area behind the scenes? Mm
3: for the paleontology part of behind the scenes, our paleo prep lab will be open, so you'll actually get a chance to hang out with me and see all the cool fossils that we're working on in the prep lab right now. We'll also have our paleontology collections with our paleontology collections manager. She has lots of cool Pleistocene fossils, so not dinosaurs, more like the fuzzballs of our giant mammals, so like Beavers the size of black bears, ancient bison that used to roam Utah, things along those lines. And then several of our other collections will have things going on as well. Um, Botany will be doing a lot of tree work with a lot of the tree rings showing how climate change has altered over the last couple thousand years. And then... um, anthropology will showcase lots of the minerals and plants that go into dyes and how those dyes are changing and because the plants are changing throughout our system ecosystems
1: well I know being at the museum a number of times it's an extensive exhibit that we see what percentage of the actual artifacts and fossils and stones that you have at the museum are on display versus down in the underbelly that people rarely get to see
3: That's a great question. So as much as we have on display, that's roughly two to 5% of our entire collection through the museum. Wow. So our museum, usually about 95% of everything is behind the scenes in the collections because there's just so much material we would love to show off as much as possible. There's just not enough room to show everything off. Ah, so of
0: all of the paleontological digs going on around our state right now, what percent, I mean, where do all of the fossils go? Do they all come to, say it's a Utah State paleontologist, um, that project, would it still go to the Natural History Museum of Utah because you have the largest exhibition ability and also probably the
3: largest place you know vaults to put the collections Mm -hmm. uh yes we are like the state repository for the state of utah but there are other repositories in utah that store material too so you have like cu price st george is building a repository right now there's us vernal has some repository status so there's lots of different museums in utah that hold fossils but i think and I'll tip our hats on this one, I think we are the largest one with Mm -hmm. all of our repository just on sheer number of fossils that we have in our collections.
0: So could
3: you, as
0: a paleontologist,
3: live in any other place on Earth but Utah? You could, but it would be very (laughs) difficult because (laughs) let's be real, Utah is one of the best places, not just in North America, in the world, to find fossils because we have such a complete mm-hmm. fossil record here in utah and there's several institutions that come to utah from other states to do work finding fossils here and describing those fossils so you could but for me like that's why i moved up here and took this position in salt lake at the natural history museum is because of the amazing fossils that they have here in utah mm-hmm. and the chance to work on them
1: yeah Well, the fossils at the museum, the very small percentage that they apparently have on display, are in such an amazing order as you walk in, for those of our listeners and our co-hosts who haven't been to the Museum of Natural History, um, as you walk in through the paleontology exhibit, you actually move through, it's a very well thought out and intentional layout as you move through time and the different types of of dinosaur fossils. tell us the reasoning and the the system behind that.
3: So part of the reason to showcase all the different animals in their respective time is to kind of get that idea of you're walking through time. So we start off with our Pleistocene, the very early history. So a lot of the mammoths, mastodons, bison. And then we move into the Eocene, which is about 35 million years ago or so, seeing what small horses, alligators, and all the fish that are famous through. So each time period kind of takes a famous area of Utah as well. You move into the Cretaceous about 75 million years ago with all of our amazing dinosaurs and the dinosaurs I specialize in. So things like Teratophonius, which is our Tyrannosaurus Rex great, great grandpa, basically based off Grand Staircase, the work we do there. Then we move into the Jurassic, based off the Cleveland-Lloyd quarries with all the Allosaur and Long Neck, Baryosaurus mixed in there. And then you kind of tour back through those, so you get to go and see all these different famous time periods in Utah that are preserved. Nice.
1: Well, as a as an undergraduate, I was lucky enough to be in geology and we were actually able to go into the other 95% of the museum's collection and do a lot of mineral research and I know at the, at the new museum the mineral exhibition, exhibition is smaller than what was at the original. Will there be a mineralogy highlight during this next weekend?
3: Yes, there's, as they say, we always have some minerals out, Mm -hmm. and minerals are housed in with the paleontology collections. So you will be able to get to see some minerals along with our paleontology collections in the back of house at Behind the Scenes. Okay, good.
0: So the Behind the Scenes, again, is November 11th and 12th, not this weekend, but next weekend takes place from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. on both saturday and sunday it's an all ages public event at the museum and it is free with the uh, price of admission admission and uh what else do we have what what did we miss there that might be you talked about anthropology
3: so going into button. like some of our vertebrate paleo or vertebrate zoology will be showcasing some of our snowshoe hairs and some other amazing little critters going through there archaeology will be going through the evolution of stone tools and how they have changed and again shaped with our ecosystems and in general it's just we are focusing kind of our theme this year is our climate of hope and how Environments and ecosystems have changed over the last several thousand years
0: when you say climate of hope Do you feel like there is a lot of hope or is there that kind of sentiment at the Natural History Museum? That there is hope that all of our species and our plants
3: are adapting there is hope and there has been a lot of amazing conservation stories that have gone on through with these and building new systems and trying to understand these systems. There is a a little bit of a revelation that like there are things that are changing and how quickly can everything adapt and not everything may be able to adapt, but doesn't mean that it's going to be a complete collapse and that there is hope to keep things going.
1: So Tyler, tell us a little bit more about you. When did you, what were you doing before you came to the museum?
3: Well, back before I became like an official paleontologist, (laughs) uh, I actually worked for construction and would volunteer doing paleontology as much as possible. And eventually that led me into getting internships and labs taking a chance on me as, oh, there's this young kid who's doing all the paleo work. Let's give a chance. And I started working in Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument in Kanab running their lab for a little bit and then I got the opportunity to come up to Salt Lake and run the lab up here but before that I was living in Las Vegas traveling to St. George every Monday to get my paleo fix and then would go back and every time there was a paleo dig or a chance to Continue on doing paleo. I took that advantage and volunteered with it. So I started out as a volunteer for seven years before getting like my first official job in paleontology.
1: I think that's fascinating because it just goes to show that most of us, including myself, just typically pigeonhole paleontologists as either working in the field on a dig or in a museum. But as you just dem- you know, just demonstrated, you worked in for construction. What other areas can paleontologists, what other fields can paleontologists find work in?
3: There are so many and it has changed or evolved a lot in the last 20 years, I'd say. The different branches that you can do, there's now doing paleochemistry where you're looking for bioresidues that are millions of years old and looking in those residues can tell you roughly what kind of life was around at that time. There's looking, doing more biology side, so you find a lot of work in anatomy or doing zooarchaeology, which is comparing animals and applying them to like archeology span in the sense of what are the animals telling you about climate and their interactions with people. So the field has changed a lot from when I first started doing school 20 years ago that we wouldn't think about some of these aspects going in. So there's lots of chemistry, physics, and paleontology has gotten more broad in the last 20 years with all the different types of subjects and questions you can ask and try to find answers to.
0: Hmm. It's interesting when you talk about construction I think about you know if you're in St. George and just the development there and if you look at that area between St. George and the St. George Airport for example I mean the whole thing is excavated now and so how does paleontology fit into you, you know new construction projects and and how do you know do they always call in paleontologists to just kind of survey the area before they start constructing
3: yeah so it, uh, for calling a paleontologist in to like survey an area it depends on the type of construction and land use but a lot of times they do call us in we do there'll be paleontologists that do survey work and find fossils or trackways or bones But then there's sometimes you don't know any of that's there and they will hit it on accident and it's always kind of like a happy accident sometimes with those because oh it may have got damaged slightly but we had no idea it was there and now the chance to see it work on it and preserve it that's a chance we didn't have before so construction helps in a lot of discoveries and in my experience most construction has always been like oh this is so cool too we want to help you get the preserve these fossils and get them saved somewhere
0: right right and we just want to mention even though we're not going to talk about it today we it's been in the news a lot about fossils discovered with the changing waterline of Lake Powell we're going to talk to someone that you've worked with um, in a couple of weeks we'll, we'll air that show so we won't talk about it too much but if people are out there wondering what about those fossils in Lake Powell yeah stay tuned
1: yeah and you were part of that team so we'll be discussing that more later with Andrew the team leader um, so when kids come down well, okay not just kids because if I might come down and be part of the behind the scenes what do visitors get to do when they go to the behind the scenes in the paleontology with you um, next weekend?
3: So like I said, you get to come into a lot of our collection spaces. So the paleontology prep lab will be open. We'll have some demonstrations with the tools that we use, how we actually prepare the fossils out of the rock. You can go into our collections and see where all of our fossils are stored and the efforts that go into preserving the fossils. So. Researchers 100 years from now can look at those fossils and everything is preserved. We have our anthro with our dyes, our vertebrate zoology showing off all their specimens that they have going into snowshoe hares. Our botany collections, seeing plants, but specializing in tree rings or uh, tree biscuits or cookies if you wanna get crazy with them. There's so much that you don't typically get to see and the science behind all those because this is an event where we only open up these collections really once a year to let everyone see all the amazing work behind the scenes that we get to do. Well,
1: and I think it's great for especially the kids to see what these scientists actually do for a living besides, you know, the vision we have of the the paleontologist out tromping around in the field with a little, you know, brush and a pickaxe. But we see you in the lab, piecing together, thinking, analyzing um, what other educational programs does the museum offer for kids to get them excited about the fields that you all are in?
3: So a lot of times during the summer, we'll do summer learning camps for students and kids to get them interested in science, building building the ways to ask questions and Mm -hmm. encouraging the minds because everything starts with questions. So we do lots of summer classes and some other classes throughout the year. With that, with our learning labs, when students come in, can come in on field trips. We offer learning labs that are STEM or science based. To again, getting them asking questions, and it's one of those things you don't necessarily like have to committed to a particular thing a lot of science overlaps and that's one thing we show a lot too is the overlap with our collaborations between multiple departments to show that oh just because I do paleontology doesn't mean I can't do physics or archaeology there's so much overlap in science and it's just encouraging science
0: yeah getting people really turned on and excited about it well Tyler you talk about the time you spend in the lab and you're the lab manager so we know a lot of your time is spent there but I've got some photos that show that you actually go out into the field as well (laughs) so what is going on out in the field
3: where have you been recently what have you been working on Uh, so a lot of our recent work that we've been doing is we do a lot of work in Grand Staircase Escaline National Monument our history muse- Natural History Museum has been working out there for over 15 years because every year we can go out and find a brand new animal no one's ever seen before. So we've been working that for the last 15 years. This year we wrapped up some excavations. So we found a juvenile Parasaurolophus. And if you're wondering what dinosaur that one is, it's the best dinosaur. <laughs> it's a duck-built dinosaur with a big tube on the back of its head that's actually all part of its nose so it breathes through that tube they're kind of associated as like the trumpeting dinosaurs because of that huge tube system on the back of their head but we've also been finding lots of tyrannosaur material and possibly although we're not sure what it is it's either a very small meat-eating dinosaur or possibly a bird We couldn't uncover much of it in the field. We just brought it all back, and we'll be working on that in the lab this fall to get an idea of what this is.
1: Well, I was gonna ask you, do you have a favorite dinosaur, but it almost sounds like the one with the tube on its head might be?
3: Yes, Parasaurolophus, in my opinion, is the best dinosaur, and it's my favorite, and it's actually the dinosaur I study. Oh, cool.
1: Well, Tyler Berthasell, thank you for coming up and joining us and bringing your enthusiasm for paleontology and dinosaurs. I mean, just I've always loved dinosaurs as a kid, but now I'm even more excited about it. For our listeners, the Natural History Museum of Utah is doing their behind-the-scenes, where they're opening up a lot of their collections to visitors. It's November 11th and 12th from 10 to 5. And if you go, be sure and check out the paleontology part because... Tyler here will be leading that group, and I tell you what, if, you're, if your energy is like this in the studio, I can only imagine <laughs> yeah. what it's going to be like with the bones in your hands. So, Tyler, thank you for joining us.
3: You're very welcome. <laughs> I bet kids just love you, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> yes, until I can't pronounce the dinosaur the same way that they do. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thanks, Tyler.
0: You've been listening to KPCW Park City. You can always find our Archive shows if you miss something at kpcw.org under the shows tab and cool science radio we are also podcasting wherever you get your podcasts at kpcw cool science radio